I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, historian and smut-seeking reader. I'm still reading dirty books, or books that were unjustly labelled as dirty by the Irish censor. Many of those books were never famous for being smutty, and most were never famous at all. If you hoped, as I did, that the blacklist would offer prescribed reading for sex maniacs, you'd be wrong. But sex is such an important part of human relationships that the censor banned a multitude of books that were not looking to titillate readers. Of course, the funny thing about reading like a censor is that I now see sex in literature in an entirely different light. The censors were right, of course. Sex is everywhere in books. But there are lots of different types of sex, and that's where it gets really interesting. This episode's book is The Flight from the Enchanter by Iris Murdoch, which was published in 1956. Murdoch's best-known book is probably The Sea, The Sea, because it won the Booker Prize in 1978. But that was her 19th book. The Flight from the Enchanter was just her second novel, so this banned book is very early in her literary career. Murdoch was banned by the Irish censor again in 1961 for a book called The Severed Head. But after the censorship laws loosened up a bit in 67, she was never again banned. As for appropriate beverages to accompany the flight from the Enchanter, I don't really have much choice. This book has a vivid, chaotic atmosphere, and it's quite intense and absorbing. But Murdoch doesn't invest the consumption of food and drink with much emotional significance. Characters don't spend a lot of time eating or drinking, compared to other books I've read earlier on in the podcast. But she does use drink when she wants to be funny, And this book is often hilarious. For example, the Polish twins Jan and Stefan toast their motherland with teacups filled with sherry. Then they toast Britain, saying, We drink the horrible wines of our new country. I love how this shows the immigrant experience, equal parts bewildered affection and mockery. And also, I too have drunk sherry in spite of myself. The other noticeable beverage in the book is champagne. Mrs Wingfield, a rich old suffragette, serves champagne to the heroine Rosa in a beautiful Dresden china cup. Champagne seems to me to symbolise the fizzy joy Murdoch was experiencing while writing this book. 
there's a breathless giddiness to the funny parts. And Murdoch is unapologetic about how outrageously silly some of the story is. I'm not denying the darker, more sinister elements of the narrative, but the booze is definitely part of the light-hearted, amusing half of the book. So, whether it's real champagne or Earthsat's fizz, pick up something effervescent and toast Iris Murdoch's infectious joy. And I cannot imagine a better antidote to the dour, dull, censorious-minded than something fizzy and fun. It's not especially easy to summarise the plot of this book because it's full of overlapping and interlocking characters. At its heart is a mysterious, terrifying and deeply attractive man called Misha Fox, but he doesn't appear in person for ages. He's a dreaded presence for half the book before he ever appears in London. Misha is a refugee from Europe who moved to Britain after World War II. His origins are murky, even to himself, and the source of his wealth and power over everyone in the narrative is obscure. He is the enchanter of the title, weaving plots and webs of intrigue around the women, who are transfixed by his personality, almost like deer in the headlights. To put it bluntly, he's the fuckboy of the book. He is dangerous, charismatic and irresistible, the man you hate to love. The heroine is an Englishwoman called Rosa Keep, a former lover of Misha, who simultaneously dreads and yearns for his return to her life. I think one of the major themes of the book is a dialogue between the English-born and the foreigners, the refugees living in London after the war. The other major theme is gender equality, both in the workplace and in personal relationships. Rich, aged, balshy suffragettes also play a starring role in one of the subplots. Now, for the parts I'm going to read out this time, I'm working off an e-book because, surprise, surprise, the libraries are still closed, so I can't use physical books. The first bannable moment in the book appears in Chapter 2. Calvin Blick, one of Misha's creatures, is trying to buy a small journal called the Artemis from Hunter Keep, brother of the heroine Rosa. The journal had been founded by their deceased mother, a leading suffragette in her day. In the midst of their argument over ownership, this exchange happens. Like to see a photograph of my mother? asked Calvin. This was an old routine. I'm not interested, said Hunter. Calvin drew a sheaf of photographs out of his breast pocket. He showed Hunter the first one. It represented a well-proportioned girl dressed in a pair of black stockings and high-heeled shoes. Not bad, said Hunter. And this is one of her after she dyed her hair, said Calvin. The next photograph showed a blonde climbing out of a bath. That's enough, said Hunter. Where do you get those things anyway? Rumour said that Calvin Blick took all his photographs himself. Oh, just out of the family album, said Calvin. I confess I found this outrageous and hilarious. Why does Calvin Blick pretend it's his mother in the photos? And then there's the name, Blick. Blick is German for a scenic view, but it also means a glance or a look. It's just a random German language pun thrown in for added laughs, and I love it. Calvin doesn't really know Hunter, by the way. They're not mates sharing a moment to leer over a nudie pic. This is just completely random. 
much later, Calvin's amateur photography habit is part of a blackmail plot, but that's not at all obvious here. So this insertion of a plot device could be strange or forced, but instead I laughed. Then I marvelled at Murdoch's nerve and skill. Now, I agree that it seems doubtful a brief reference to a dirty photograph was rude enough to merit a ban, but the censorship legislation also prohibited the circulation of indecent pictures. So Murdoch wrote about an act, making and showing nudie pics, that was as illegal in Ireland as the distribution of information on abortion or contraception. Obscene images, therefore, combine the twin obsessions of the Irish censors, criminal activity and sex. I'm guessing that Murdoch had offended the censors at this point by chapter 2. But there was more than nudes to upset the prudish censors. Luckily for you and me, it got saucier. Rosa took the Polish twins, Jan and Stefan, under her wing when they first arrived in London as refugees. When we meet them, they have gone from being unkept, shabby and shy young men to being total rides. But Rosa remembers her journey with them, when they treated her as half lady of the manor and half social worker, as she puts it in chapter 4. And I'm going to read out a little bit from this chapter just to show you how she conceptualised their relationship. Their deference, their helplessness, their timidity called up in Rosa a perfect frenzy of protective tenderness. She felt as if she were warming back to life a couple of small birds who had been battered and frozen almost to extinction. Every day brought her an advance, a triumph, a surprise. During this time, she was made very happy indeed by the Lucevitz brothers. So she has acquired children, or wards, who she woos, flatters and encourages. Her power over them, her role in their transformation, makes her very happy. But then, as Murdoch writes, something happened which Rosa had not exactly foreseen, but thought of and refused to contemplate. Stefan kissed her, and asked her if she wanted it to continue. Although she says yes, she is afflicted by a terrible paralysis of will, so she's not enthusiastic about it. When dining with him alone, she is once again scared, and this is a direct quote. She knew she had called up a love against which she was now defenceless. She wanted something more than friendship from the twins. She thrived on their dependence but is now transfixed by Stefan's transformation into a decisive, demanding lover. He is no longer an object of pity or a pet animal, but a man who demands sex from her. And here's where it gets really freaky. The twins live in a one-roomed flat with their aged, bed-bound, mute Polish mother. This disquieting geriatric makes Rosa uneasy, but doubly so in the context of sex in the same room as her. Stefan doesn't care, however, and this is the sex scene from chapter 4. He rose to his feet, pulling Rosa with him. Your mother, said Rosa. She not see, not hear, said Stefan. Involuntarily, Rosa stepped back so as to be out of sight of the old woman round the angle of the room. And, as she moved, Stefan caught her off balance and threw her full length onto the mattress. He fell on top of her, and they lay there panting. After a few moments, he was making love to her savagely. Yikes, 
That was an uncomfortable read. Coercive sex in the same room as his elderly mother. Ugh, gross. But it gets weirder, because the next evening she visits the flat as usual to find Stefan absent and Jan waiting for her. Now, some of you have already guessed what happens next. I'll read it out, because we're still in Chapter 4. Now we make love, said Jan. Oh, God, said Rosa. Then she added, that is not possible, Jan. Jan looked down at her with a look of surly incomprehension. How not possible, he said. For Stefan, but not for me. So is not. Get up. Rosa got up. They were standing very close to each other. Jan was immobile, his face stony. Rosa was trembling between anger and the grief of despair. You know about Stefan, she said. Of course, said Jan. And now is me. Come. Rosa's knees gave way and she sank down onto the mattress. So now we have Rosa shagging Jan and Stefan on alternate nights after their English lessons. She apparently prefers this option to losing their friendship entirely and is oddly pleased that the two men have agreed to share her. But she's also troubled on a fundamental level about the whole affair, which she hadn't really wanted. And this paragraph sets out Murdoch's understanding of sexual power between men and women. And all the while, behind that fatalism and this distress, there grew in Rosa a more profound uneasiness. The power had left her now. The mastery had passed to the brothers. They were as gentle and as respectful as ever, but their eyes were the eyes of conquerors. In the deep heart of her, which they themselves had laid open, Rosa resented this, and as the days passed, she began to fear them. One of the themes of this book is that sex with men, or love for men, strips women of power, agency and selfhood. In fairness, though, Rosa is complicit in the evolution of this odd relationship and gives explicit consent at its very beginning. Murdoch is sophisticated enough to see how personal dynamics can be abusive or inappropriate in manifold, confusing ways. While the sex between the twins and Rosa is not explicit and definitely not attractive, the censor would have lost his mind over this particular scenario. It's not just extramarital sex, but kinky extramarital sex. This would definitely provoke impure thoughts, the bete noire of conservative Ireland. Rosa can't seem to extricate herself from the relationship with the brothers, who become increasingly menacing. One of them moves into her house without permission, bullies her brother, and assaults a young woman who lives with them. But it's like sex with them has surgically removed her own will and personality. She decides that the feared Misha is the only way out of her dilemma because he can fix anything. But she also doesn't want to turn to him because he scares her. So there's a nightmarish feel to this part of the narrative where she is trapped between demonic lovers and a terrifying former lover. It's chapter 22 before she finally seeks Misha's help, which is a long time to keep a reader in suspense. I'm guessing that you're thinking fizzy fun drinks are not an adequate defence against this sort of gothic horror story, but the book weaves many stories together so that you're rarely reading about Rosa's emotionally abusive relationship for too long. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's light relief in the tale of John Rainborough, a smug and shockingly lazy man who is outmaneuvered by the women who work in his office. It's a very funny account of office politics, where the entitled dude with the executive power is bested by the secretaries who do the actual work. He deserves everything he gets, but Murdoch doesn't portray a bitter gender war. She chooses to write it as a comedy. This bit from chapter 8 is so brilliant, I have to read it to you. Some people find it impossible to distinguish undergraduates. Rainborough had never been able to distinguish typists. They all looked to him exactly alike. He could see their smile, but no other features. So it was that, without giving the matter a second thought, he had taken over his new post, and with it Miss Casement's clicking typewriter and her radiant grin. Miss Casement emerges as his nemesis, both in the office and in love. When she conquers the workplace, she endeavours to seduce him and marry him. Like Rosa, he is helpless to resist, though he is perfectly capable of attempting to rape another character, so his passivity doesn't make a lot of sense. He is spineless and loathsome, and I cheered on Miss Casement at every turn. I don't know why she wanted to marry him, because her point of view doesn't tell the story, but I like to think it was for the thrill of the chase. And Rainborough is independently wealthy, living in a nice big house, while Miss Casement is a self-made woman who rents a tiny apartment. She is an ambitious, clever woman without scruples, and I loved her. I suspect this fearless man-eater, who is given all of the author's sympathy, would have horrified the censors. Working women who seek to emasculate men is still a nightmare vision of dangerous modernity. Unfortunately, Miss Casement is bested in the end by another woman who takes control of the sappy Rainborough, but his smugness is undercut by his total lack of autonomy. 
So, unlike the gloomy, angst-ridden sexual relationships that characterise Rosa, the heroine, Rainborough is emotionally uninvolved, even as he complains about the horrible fascination women exert over him. He feels powerless, but the machinations of miscasement are not dreadful or threatening to his selfhood. Rainborough and Rosa's brother Hunter are the two most important male characters who narrate parts of the book, and both are pretty facile, ineffectual blokes. Murdoch prioritises the point of view of her female characters, chiefly Rosa, but also Annette and Nina. And it's Nina's story that I found really interesting. She cherishes a tortured love for the terrible Misha, which he manipulates so that she becomes his creature, almost his slave. Though their relationship is neither romantic nor sexual, he has conquered her entirely. Nina's weakness isn't simply her crush on Misha, but her position as a refugee. She is alone, friendless and traumatised when Misha meets her, making her the perfect victim. She wants to flee, but she fears he will know if she makes any practical steps to escape. Like all abuse victims, she is paralysed by fear and an irrational belief that the abuser is omnipotent. She wants to enlist Rosa's help, because Rosa is the only person to have evaded Misha and survived. But she is too lost in her own troubles to pay attention, and Nina cannot get any help. Both women are trapped in coercive, disturbing, abusive relationships, but cannot see or share this fact with each other. It's tragic, and Nina loses all hope when Rosa's efforts to free herself from the twins precipitates a change in immigration policy. Nina gets a letter from the Home Office demanding that she re-register to obtain permission to stay in Britain. The same immigration policy that saves Rosa from the refugee twins sends Nina into despair. And Chapter 26 is an incredibly powerful piece on belonging, nationality and the state, where Nina regards her passport as the book of judgment, the record of her sins, the final and irrevocable sentence of society upon her. Her memories of border checks, surly guards and refusals is so traumatic that she breaks down and takes her own life. I think Nina's refugee story is really powerful and resonant. In fact, apart from the sex, I think the book is about refugees and rootlessness. Misha's power is rooted in his foreignness, as is that of the Polish twins. To Rosa, these men are exotic, erotic and unknowable, though ultimately terrifying. Murdoch then created a collection of transparent and boring British-born blokes to contrast with the fascinating foreigners. The interesting thing is that Murdoch knew a lot about refugees because she had worked for the UN in post-war Europe. Murdoch wrote this book in the aftermath of the Second World War when conflict and the post-war settlement had recently upended the map of Europe. Her refugee characters cannot or will not say where they came from. They refuse to locate their home places on maps. They are people from lands that no longer exist and this imbues the men with dark magic. Oddly, this doesn't apply to poor Nina, whose rootlessness makes her vulnerable and ultimately destroys her. Just so you know, the enchanter Misha figure is apparently based on Elias Canetti, one of Murdoch's many lovers. 
Canetti fled the Nazi regime in 1938 and became a British citizen in 1952. He was a multilingual, much-travelled Jewish writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1981. Since he was fictionalised as a malevolent control freak, I wonder what he was really like. So maybe the differences between the powerful male refugees and the broken female characters arises because Murdoch is working through her European men kink. But I think you can imagine how Murdoch would see herself in these European refugees too. She was born in Dublin in 1919 and left when she was two. She never again lived in Ireland, though she spent many family holidays there. The borders of her birth country were transformed between 1920 and 21. By 1922, the 32-county island was governed by two new parliaments, one of which was independent from Britain. Although never a refugee, she spent the early part of her career pondering her attachment to Ireland. Perhaps her interest in nationality arose from her own complicated relationship to the country of her birth. For me, the ending of the book doesn't make a lot of sense, and I find it hard to tell you exactly what happens. It just kind of stops. Not that it's disappointing, but I just don't find the ending very interesting. Rosa ends up with an inheritance from the champagne-swilling suffragette, although her backup love interest refuses to marry her. I don't know, is that a good ending? Annette, subject to two sexual assaults, is entirely unfazed by everything and heads off into the European sunset with her rich parents. I mean, it's fine, but it doesn't do anything for me. This book is more an emotional experience, so overthinking the ending ruins the atmosphere. But I would heartily recommend reading it. I thought it was a wild ride. I forgave Murdoch her excesses willingly. When she took the piss, I genuinely didn't mind. There are moments that should be too much, but I laughed out loud instead of getting annoyed. For example, this sentence from chapter 12, describing a photography lab, shouldn't work. There was a smell of science. But the tension has been wound up so much by this point that I just laughed in disbelief. Murdoch often walks a high wire between terror and ridiculousness, except when she's being ridiculously funny. I'll admit that lots of you might find this book unsophisticated, but I think it's a riot. And I always appreciate a novel centred around a female point of view. Women's hair and the alchemy of the perfect dress are rarely dealt with seriously in fiction written by men. I'd imagine her books evolved over the course of her 40-year writing career, so this early novel may not compare to her later work. But I'm so glad this was my first Murdoch novel because it was mental. She was an immensely talented writer, but she didn't take herself seriously, at least in the early 1950s. So after all that gender politics and sexual relationships that wouldn't be out of place in a porno, it's time to play censorship bingo. And as usual, breasts, the first square, is ticked off. Boobs are ubiquitous in so many books. There's no bestiality, no sex work, no racism in spite of all the discussions of foreignness, no drugs... No politics, not a word of bad language. Infidelity. There are hints that Misha was involved with Annette's mother, but that's a hangover from the past, and it's not clear if she was married at that time, so I cannot say adultery is explicitly discussed. 
crime. Not really, apart from the rude pictures. Genitalia, no, no references there. No abortion. Orgies. I'm not sure what to say here, because Rosa and the Polish twins appear to have a threesome at one point. But it's not really clear if that's the case. When I read it the first time, I thought they had had sex. But a second reading confused me. Perhaps it's just my own filthy mind in this case. Nonetheless, I think it is heavily implied that all three of them had sex together. So I'll tick that box. Sexual assault is the next box. There are two explicit occasions of sexual assault. Extramarital pregnancy. No, pregnancy does not result from the extramarital sex that happens in the book. No masturbation, sex toys, feminism. I don't know if you could call suffragettes feminism, so I think I might not tick that box. There's no divorce, no contraception, no menstruation, no blasphemy at all for all that it's full of magic. Oral sex, no no graphic violence. Queer characters. I think I might tick this box because of the relationship between Calvin Blick and Misha Fox. At the very end of the book, Calvin says of Misha, he killed me a long time ago. Given how the Enchanter extinguishes those who love him, you could read this as a reference to a love affair. So I am going to tick that box, I think. The Flight from the Enchanter scores just 4 out of 25 using my present bingo card. And to be honest, two of those are arguably pushing it a bit much. Of course, the bingo card is far from comprehensive enough to catch everything. Until now, I had not considered literary characters discussing nude photographs. And as I reach the end of season one, I'm wondering if I should revise the bingo card. On the other hand, it seems a futile exercise to devise a checklist of human behaviour that was defined as indecent by the Irish censors. How many squares would I need to catalogue sex in over 12,000 books? And even if I expanded the bingo card, I think it would still underestimate how much sex preoccupies this novel's characters. I'm surprised the book doesn't score higher in censorship bingo, because it's full of portents, suspicions, things glimpsed out of the corner of your eye. I suspect this suggestiveness worried censors as much as a kinky threesome with two hot European blokes. The mutability and instability of Murdoch's text is compelling to me as a reader, but probably a little scary to literal-minded censors. And that's it for season one, my first attempt to grapple with literary censorship in Ireland, the best little country in the world at banning books. If you did like the podcast, any chance you could leave a review or recommend it to a friend? The only thing better than reading Smut aloud to myself is reading it out loud to a large audience. I have season two planned already. The book list is up on my website, censored.ie, if you fancy reading ahead. I'm reading some heavyweight canonical literature next season. I wonder how I will get on with Samuel Beckett and J.P. Dunleavy. There will be lots more guests sharing their expertise and covering up my ignorance. Tune into the trailer for season two to hear a preview of the sexual shenanigans in great and not-so-great literature.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.